I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. Today we're going to talk about blocking, how actors are arranged in front of the camera in the film Before the Devil Knows You're Dead by Sidney Lumet, his final movie. And to discuss that, we're going to talk with the biggest Sidney Lumet fan we know, our guest, Cam Carpenter. Welcome to Film Formally. Today we're talking to Cameron Carpenter. He's a screenwriter based in Los Angeles. A few listeners may recognize him from his series of parody video essays that he did a while back, Why is Cinema? And he's handily the biggest enthusiast for Sidney Lumet, who I know of. He's joined us today to talk about blocking in Lumet's final film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Cam, thanks for chatting with us today. Of course, thank you so much for inviting me. In Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, two brothers, Andy and Hank, are facing major financial strain. Andy has been embezzling money from his real estate firm to fund his drug addictions, and they're facing an audit. And Hank is several months behind on paying child support. The two undertake a heist of their own parents' jewelry store. And when the plan goes awry, a long history of betrayal and resentments explodes into a family tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. More Shakespearean, biblical. My gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's basically Cain and Abel. Except in, in this version, Abel is also stripping Cain's wife. So, uh, you know. Before we dive into that movie, we should get our terms straight. So, what are we talking about when we talk about blocking, Cam? Uh, I think we're going to define it as the way subjects are in relation to the camera and how they move uh, with the camera and with other actors or subjects in the scene. There can be some fuzzy edges with these terms, especially around staging and mise-en-scene. So if you see someone else using these terms differently than we do, then they're not necessarily wrong. Just be aware, but that's the definition we're running with. So blocking, the term comes from Theater directors, apparently, from my limited research on the subject in the 19th century, actually physically using blocks on little miniature theater sets in order to work out what the actor's positioning would be in each scene. And the tradition ended up getting carried over to cinema. And it's a part of the arrangement of not only the characters, but the spaces and the objects relative to the camera. So it's a universal technique. If a movie has any kind of tangible space, whether it's 2D or 3D, and there is a character in that space, then the movie has blocking. It is a pretty complex visual tool, and it's pretty easy to not notice blocking or register it as a choice when it's really fluid and well-attuned to the actor's motivations. So even though this is an audio format that you're listening to, Hopefully by hearing us describing moments of blocking in detail from time to time, we'll make you more aware of the nuances and the number of choices involved. And of course, we'll have some examples of the blocking in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead on our website in our episode show notes. You can find that at filmformally.com. Cam, it was uh, the most natural choice in the world if we were going to have you on to talk about Sidney Lumet. I want to know why you thought Before the Devil Knows You're Dead was a good movie to talk about blocking in? One of the reasons why is because it's his last film. And I think looking throughout his entire filmography, I think you can see a very specific evolution of, you know, when he was directing TV for CBS back in like 1954 and 55, um, you know, where they're shooting live, 
And so they have to rehearse and have all their actors blocked, you know, properly with the right lenses and everything like that to a completely controlled setting throughout a filmography of 44 films. Um, so I, I, I specifically wanted to look at blocking because to see just how uh, this film is a shot digitally, which is his first film that he shot digitally, and to register how he still kind of operates in sort of like a film mindset in terms of having rehearsals. Um, having blocked the actor specifically, having like an economical edit, all these things that he takes from his film career and applies to a digital format. Um, and then also just comes from the theater. So I think that part of why I wanted to talk about blocking was just because it's the end of the evolution for him. And that's always just kind of interesting, I think, for any filmmaker to look at their first work. Um, for him, feature-wise, of course, is 12 Angry Men. Um, and then look at the last work and see how things have changed, how their lens plotting has changed, how that affects the blocking and all this stuff. So yeah, I'm excited for the episode. I'm excited to, to chat about uh, how close these guys get to the camera and you know when they're sharing the same space and when they're moving and not moving. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a fun time. It's a fun family film for everyone. It's a <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, uh, I actually um, watched uh, some of Twanga... I actually watched some of 12 Angry Men uh, after rewatching this film. And what struck me most was how little he's changed in a few key ways. Um, it feels like sometimes he's one of the few directors actually continuing on the tradition that like Greg Toland and Wells kind of pioneered uh, and actually using that Z axis to its fullest. Um, just 12 angry mm. men is especially the first half. Um, in the second half, he, he, he's pulling the camera further back, but zooming in, uh, to compress space. But in the first half, he's got like Henry Fonda a foot away from the camera. He'll just extract as much possible Z axis from that space as possible. And that continues in this film, right? You have all you know, my favorite scene in the movie, probably, which is Finney, in the foreground, Hoffman in the background, in the master shot where they're sitting in the picnic table at the funeral, um, and the you know, ha you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. depending on in the backyard, yeah, it's sort of like they, they have a picnic table in the backyard, and then um, depending on which side of the coverage you're on, one of the actors it feels like you just want to you're leaning back in your chair because you don't want to be that close to these men. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's a phenomenal just as a sensory thing outside of the scene by scene stuff which I'm excited to unpack it's a phenomenal technique of just tension generation people. oh absolutely constantly just um, way too close to these people for comfort it's the scene that I think both expresses their relationship and also actually reveals it to us because before that point in the film, the particulars of their pre-existing father-son relationship were murky. Um, and to me, it's the blocking that expresses this far more than the dialogue, especially, sorry, hit my mic, especially because we see that scene once before from Tomei's perspective and all you get is the blocking, no dialogue. And even then their relationship becomes super clear. And that's that they start the scene. Hoffman is sitting on the right side of the picnic table. Um, Finney walks all the way around the picnic table, does not sit on the opposite side, comes to the foreground, sits on the same side as him. But even though he's sitting on the same side as him, as Hoffman, um, which to me feels like a, you know, it's meant to be a gesture of, you know, maybe trying to connect. He's sitting in the opposite direction the whole time. They spend the entire scene talking past each other, literally and figuratively. And 
the combination of that and the little tidbits of backstory we get from that scene uh, reveal Finney. It's 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 almost like the to me it's the closest thing the movie has to a twist. The fact that Finney was a clearly a horrifically negligent father <laughs> who is largely responsible for you know the horrific way his sons turned out. Um, even more you know Adam and Cain and Abel type stuff here. Um, and I just love that scene so much because it's such an I, it, as someone who has a perfectly fine relationship with my father, um, it, uh, I found it comp- hugely touching and tragic. Um, and 90% of that is literally just the direction they're sitting and the performance yeah, choices you, made. You tend, to, <laughs> you tend to get one over pretty easily by uh, tortured father-son relationships. Bruce Springsteen is the best songwriter ever, Will. And, and also just looking at this film and looking at shots that he did, that are almost like complete repeats. There's a, there's a shot in this one of after Philip Seymour Hoffman has gotten high in the apartment that he goes to for a drug dealer, and he's sitting in the chair and he's thinking about his life and reminiscing about everything that's gone wrong. And it's that just that you know very classic slow dolly push into him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this. It's the exact same shot uh, used in the end of the verdict with Paul Newman. Um, only it's just completely different tone, completely different circumstance. Um, and so you still get, you know, this element of kind of classic blocking and classic staging and things like that, but just used in a completely different way. That setup gets used a couple of times and it's used with Hoffman's character, Andy, where the camera will jib or crane downwards and then track in towards him. And then it also gets used when he gets told by Hank that the robbery has gone wrong. He's sitting at his desk and the camera similarly right. just like comes right down. Mm-hmm. And I think the commonality between how he uses it in this film and the verdict is the idea of this weight coming down and the verdict. It's spoilers for the verdict. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a it's it's a good thing <laughs> when that <laughs> camera move comes down. Whereas here it's it's uh, it's much more of a crushing weight. It's much more of a debilitating weight. Just to mm. uh, zoom out for a second again, blocking can be, it, it can be two actors facing each other while standing, sitting. It can be them facing away. It's when they're facing away, when they're facing each other, where they're facing away to. If they're alone in the room, are they pacing? Where are they pacing? Where is the camera while they're pacing? If someone lies down, sits down, stands up, runs, walks, crawls, leans, jumps, cartwheels, all of those are blocking and all those actions come with all their own host of decisions in regards to posture, direction, speed, and position. So when we talk about this camera coming down on Hoffman, we're talking about scenes where he's just sitting. He's just sitting. He's not doing anything. But the camera in the blocking scheme as kind of the tertiary participant is what's reorienting our relationship with the space and the people in it. It's rearranging the foreground background's relationship in front of our eyes. So even though no one's moving, there's a ton of movement. It's interesting with with Hoffman's character, I feel like we when we when he moves through the environment, we move with him. And yet when Hawk is moving, it's usually like a static camera where we literally watch him go through the entire space of something. So he's walking through offices from point A to point B and we're just sitting there watching him walk. Whereas with Hoffman, we'll follow him through apartments. We'll follow him like to his desk. Um, just like the way the camera operates with the characters in a different way has always been very interesting in terms of just kind of blocking for 
for this film. And it's really something that I don't, going back through his filmography, I don't know if he does that kind of thing with other characters specifically, except maybe in um, Long Day's Journey to Night, which each each character has like their own lens plot and their own kind of set movements and things like that. Um, but I feel like that's a little bit of a standout. Um, just trying to think back from his filmography of actually moving the camera in a specific way for a specific character. Yeah, and th- this um, this contrast is really brought out in. Actually, I, w- I should specify the film has a Rashomon-like structure, but it's Rashomon without the mm. epistemological uh, contradictions. <laughs> and uh, you know, you never you're never questioning whether you're seeing the reality. You you are just from different points of view, but. Um, in this film, they'll repeat the same scenes. Um, depending on whose kind of perspective we're seeing the scene from, the camera will take on a different point of view. And it's not a first-person thing, but um, for example, you'll see Hoffman and Hawk in the same position. And if you know, there's the scene where um, Hoffman propositions Ethan Hawk, uh, you know, with the uh, reveals the nature of their robbery. And the first time you see it, it's from Hawk's point of view. So Hawk is in the foreground and Hoffman is in the background stacked on the Z axis. And then we see the same scene again from Hoffman's point of view, um, except we, we don't get a matching angle. We get a master shot with the two of them where, um, where both characters are, it's not so one-sided, um, but Hoffman is still the dominant force. He's still blocked higher, but the camera is blocked higher than both of them so that they're both kind of under the gun, so to speak. Um, We're talking about the scene in the office, right? Yes, um, the scene in the yeah. office where he yes. finally, you know, he gives him the $2,000. Yeah. yeah. That scene's interesting for the reasons you point out, but also, even just taken as its piece of as its own piece of theatrical blocking, if we're paying a little less attention to the angle of the camera specifically, before we see that scene, there's a scene where the two of them meet in the bar, and all mm-hmm. Andy Hoffman's character is telling Hank Hawk's character is that, hey, there's a job, it's going to pay really well, and it's going to take care of our financial problems, and he's being friendly. He, they're on a level playing field. When Hawk refuses, unless he learns more, Hoffman doesn't berate him for it or try to convince him more. He just sort of lets him off the hook. And this scene is staged in kind of one of the most classic blocking setups there is. It's just two people at a table facing each other in a shot reverse shot. They're on a totally even playing field. And when we get to that office scene that Devin's talking about, the first version of it, as it starts, Hawk is walks into the room. He's standing up. He's looking really pleased with himself as he goes to sit down across from Hoffman's character. And over the course of the scene, by the end of it, Hoffman is in full control and Hawk is balking at the idea of robbing their parents, but isn't refusing outright. And so Hoffman circles the table and ends up sitting down over top of Hawk. And then when the scene partially replays later, which Devin is talking about, the camera angle changes, but Hoffman's still in that dominant position which just goes to show that there are these multiple layers of subtext going on between camera positioning and actor positioning uh, based on not only the perspective of the character who we're implicitly seeing this scene alongside, but from the director's perspective and just in terms of the physical in-the-moment power dynamics that are happening from body posture and positions. 
And also there's uh, the difference between those two scenes is, of course, when they're in the bar, um, you know, you've got some dirty OTS between the both when they're just going, when they're having their casual conversation. And then, of course, when they go to the office and the news actually drops that they're going to be robbing their parents' store, um, when it cuts between their shots, they're complete singles. They're, there's nobody else dirtying the frame. So they're literally like, that's the moment where they split from being like actually brothers and from being on the same page about everything. And for the rest of the film, uh, one of them will always have a dominant position and one of them will always have um, a weaker position if they're in the frame together. Um, which is kind of, you know, it starts out a little pedestrian and it just, it just gets a little, it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter and stronger, uh, which is another thing that I just love about the movie. And uh, that really climaxes where, you know, after the robbery, when, um, when Hoffman is essentially interrogating Hawk and he's just like, it's, it's one of the most viscerally uncomfortable frames I've seen in, in ages where he's just like pounding, like Hoffman's purple, he's pounding the table and Hawk is just like in his ghoulish ghoulish pose and it's on a very wide angle lens too so um so every time any of them leans or moves forward their head distends so hoffman's forehead is huge because the camera is so close to it um and uh that's with half an hour of runtime left to go <laughs> um and um it, it, yeah it really feels um the structure of the blocking in this film really re- really impressed me um because it's so well modulated like that where again you go from that uh classically shot in you know in traditional terms uh diner scene to again you're back at the same location at that last scene with hoffman interrogating hawk and you know the blocking you know minor shift in the blocking and a wider lens um completely change how we understand that scene you don't even need any dialogue for that yeah i was really surprised actually watching not not even watching the film this time but when i came back after watching it to like do some proper close analysis for this recording I was actually surprised at how few relatively scenes there are between Hoffman and Hawk in the same room. Like, and just in my memory, every time I think of the film, it's just dominated by scenes with the two of them together. But usually they're they're not together. They're apart and they're doing their separate things. And part of the reason I think it leaves such a strong impression is because those power dynamics and those family dynamics between them is just so distinctly sketched in every way. And, and the blocking is such a big part of that. I mean there's the the there's these implications from the beginning that Andy is just has always been a bit of a bully a lot of a bully <laughs> towards Hank and so when we see him leaning over that bar table after the robbery has gone wrong and he's like literally leaning onto his <laughs> closed fists that are on the table and just pounding the table every time Hank isn't answering as fast as Andy wants it's just great and <laughs> While we're just working through kind of the arc of analyzing how how their relationship is blocked, we might as well just like move on right to the next major scene, which is maybe my favorite piece of blocking in the entire movie, which is things have gotten bad. Hank is being blackmailed by somebody who knows about his part in the robbery. I should say things have gotten way worse. (laughs) I'm like, well, things will. That's the whole film. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, both he and Andy are just a hair's breadth away from being turned over to the cops. Andy has also just been left by his wife. He has very little to lose. And they're just sitting down in a room talking to each other. Andy tells Hank he has a plan and he needs Hank to just follow him and do what he says. No questions, no hesitations. And what's notable about the scene is that 
they're both sitting on opposite sides of the room for almost for like 99% of the scene. And they're as far apart visually as they've ever been and physically in the entire movie. Hank makes an objection at one point and he stands up in the wide shot of the, just the two of them far apart. And Hank is threatening to leave. You know, I'm not going to listen to you. That's what got me here. And Andy responds. He stands up and makes the same threat. And as soon as Andy starts to stand, Hank immediately sits down and it reveals that he's bluffing and that he doesn't actually have any power. And he agrees to Andy's terms and tells him to sit down and tell him what to do. And what happens next is a great example of the camera being an active participant. So they both stand up briefly, but otherwise they're sitting the whole time. What makes the scene super interesting and memorable is that we then cut into shot reverse shots. And as Cam was describing earlier, they're not, they're not dirty or uh, OTS shots. That is, there's, there's nothing, neither of them are in the frame in the foreground while we're focused on the other one in the shot. And the camera just slowly moves towards them in each of their reverse shot singles. It slowly moves towards Hank, and then it'll cut to Andy as the, and the camera's slowly moving towards him. And what this is doing is that it's keeping them as two separate entities, but it's slowly closing the gap between them so that they're no longer these just totally separate opposed entities. They're, they're for the last time, they're coming together one more time. They're simpatico for the last time. Andy's master plan is to rob his drug dealer. And uh, so (laughs) that's what they get simpatico over. Anyways, I just love that. Again, I I feel like I see that in the movie more um, with Hank, with uh, Hawk's character. Um, Even the way that he interacts with the women in his life that he loves, whether it be Marissa Tomei or his daughter, they are shot in exactly the same way. The first time we see um, uh, Hank with Marissa Tomei, after they've you know had sex and she's leaving the apartment, um, you know you get this push and then a turn, and it's literally blocked and shot in the exact same way as when his daughter comes out of the play for the first time. He's just gone to see his daughter at a play, and she comes rushing out to ask him if she can get money for to go see The Lion King on Broadway. I think is what they're going to go. <laughs> and it's literally like even the way that the daughter moves is the same direction and angles as Marissa Tomei. Uh, and it's just so psychologically interesting that there's this connection between everything that, you know, Hank wants is just mirrored throughout the entire film. It's 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 very, very interesting, very cool. Um, I love revisiting this movie. I think it, I love watching theater actors just get to act, you know, their pants off. I, I, I think I've seen this movie maybe maybe 10 or 11 times um, and it never gets old. I like how that contrasts with the way that Martha interacts with Hank. There's one scene that really sticks out where um, Hawk finally brings, you know, some of the $2,000 he was received from Hoffman, a.k.a. Andy. And uh, the scene essentially is a p- static panning shot that tracks Ryan slash Martha, as she uh, goes between her kitchen and the dining room table where Hawk is. So we awkwardly, deliberately awkwardly, pan with her as she kind of crosses these vast distances and also goes behind a pillar, which is a recurring feature with um, with both her and Tomei's character. Um, a pillar separating two parts of a room plays a very key role in uh, Tomei's final scene. And except the difference between this and that scene, which features Andy slash Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, 
is that uh, this scene completely disfavors Hawk. He is an extraneous compositional feature. Um, we are following Ryan as she goes across the room, and Hawk is just this interloper in her life. Um, and um, this kind of treatment of Hawk is an extraneous um, part of his own compositions uh, is a constant factor in this film. In, in the scene where Hawk picks up Bobby from his apartment, uh, Hawk kind of creeps into the comp- into the master shot at the very last minute um, and is essentially, if he was not there, you'd have a fine composition. But because he's there, <laughs> the balance of that composition is off and he is, again, extraneous in his own shot, which rhymes with the Amy Ryan scene so wonderfully because Hawk is always, always an afterthought in those scenes visually. It never occurred to me that Hawk tends to be moving around a space that seems to be imposing itself on him. And Andy is more of an active navigator of those spaces. I mean, that comes back in the last major scenes between the two of them where they rob Andy's drug dealer and then go to pay back their blackmailer, where Andy's the one who's like racing around the room, who's like frantically doing stuff. And Hank tends to just be standing still watching everything and, and entirely passive. The only time when he has any agency at all, I think it's notable, is after Andy kills their blackmailer, then uh, his sister walks into the room and Andy's about to kill her. Mm -hmm. Hank says, no, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you. And Hank's not doing anything to stop him. Hank can't stop him. All Hank is doing is standing there. But I think it's notable that Hank has been standing in the entrance doorway to the room the entire time they've been in there. And so Hank is now literally blocking Andy from leaving. So when Hank says, I'm not going to let you, he's doing the only thing he knows how to do, which is is basically to not do anything. And his immovability is his only strength in that moment. It's a nice little piece of irony. And it, and it ends up not getting him shot. Andy's going to shoot him. So therefore, Hank's cowardice ends up being a character strength. End podcast. I just wanted to say how much I appreciate... Um, looking uh, into the analysis of this film like this, because um, I don't know if you guys got a chance to listen to the director's commentary for the movie. Um, Oh yeah. It's been a while since I've listened to it. Yeah. They don't do much analysis whatsoever. And I feel like Lamette doesn't tend to do that much analysis when he does his commentaries, um, which I kind of love because he'll just give like a 10 minute backstory on uh, theater history or what it was like shooting on 44th Street or whatever. <laughs> um, and then, you know, another actor will appear and he was like, oh, yes, I like that actor a lot. I remember when he auditioned. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the director's commentary for Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is so much fun because it's literally just Hoffman, Hawk, and Lamette shooting the shit for the entire movie and talking about, you know, how Marissa Tomei would deal with rehearsals. And, and um, there's a story with regards to Michael Shannon, who shows up, of course, like late in the film for just like, I think maybe three scenes he's in total. Sounds right. And Shannon for his audition had come in and he basically just said one line and Lament was like, all right, thanks. And kicked him out of the audition room and then gave it to Shannon because he was like, the guy's terrifying. Just like, look at his face. This man's always going to get this kind of role. Um, that's basically all the commentary is full of is just stuff like that. So I, I think if you listen to the commentary, you're not going to get the analysis that we're giving you, but it's, it's just so much fun. I love, I love commentaries like that. 
the commentary has one moment that actually I think changed how he viewed cinema where um, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, says um, it, it, when, we, when we shot the extreme close-up of my hand clenching that trigger um, that's when I realized we were shooting a melodrama and that's when I realized what a melodrama was um, so I can thank that commentary yeah. track for introducing me to the entire world of like Douglas Sirk yeah yeah um, so. I had the exact same moment when I was 17 yeah the exact same but with that moment I was like oh melodrama good <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i i remember because i actually had forgotten that i'd listened to it before but no i definitely had in like you know 2011 or whatever and yeah it stuck with me and i'd forgotten the source of that anecdote so i'm, I'm so glad well while we're talking about favorite scenes uh, it's right before funny enough the scene that i used as an example where they meet at the bar and they're just sitting and it's the classic just shot or shot two people at a bar blocking setup the scene right before that is a scene with Hank, which I am now realizing is a really great example of what Cam was talking about as far as how Hank tends to move through spaces and Andy tends to move with the camera. It's at the 10 minute mark of the film. Hank drops his daughter off with her mother, Martha, uh, Hank's ex, after a little league game. And once his daughter's out of the room, Martha starts asking Hank questions about did she eat junk food? Did you make sure she was wearing sunscreen while Martha's folding clothes? And Hank just like puts his hands in his pockets and <laughs> just kind of saunters out of the apartment <laughs> through the open door. Uh, but Martha sets down her clothes and follows him. And she stops at the doorway as Hank reaches the elevator and Hank hits the call button and Martha leans out of the apartment suite doorway to ask about Hank's child support payments, which he's very overdue on. And while she's asking him about that from the apartment door, Hank just puts his hands on the frame of the elevator door and leans forward like he's ready to just fall into the elevator the second those doors open. <laughs> he's just desperate to leave. And he, when he answers, he'll turn to her for just a moment and they'll turn back to the elevator and he'll like slap the call button again as if it makes a difference and lean forward again like he's ready to fall in. And it's a, it's a scene with like, really dynamic blocking it's it's really good at just setting up through just visual positions and camera placement where these characters are at mentally and it just contrasts so well with that scene where they meet in the bar because it makes andy feel like a more attractive presence and it makes his offer feel more attractive to hank right where Martha is very oppositional towards Hank. Um, I think, honestly, one of the problems with the movie is that it's not super great at sketching out, you know, fully realized female characters, and it does fall into some unfortunate stereotypes. But for Hank, Andy represents stability. There's Andy's treating him like an equal in the scene. And so the shot reverse setup is boring, but that's a very attractive proposition for Hank to feel as though he's an equal part of his existence. I completely agree, like, uh, especially with, you know, the characterization of the women characters. I think the fact that Marissa Tomei can make such a meal of that character, um, it's just a testament to her talent because I, I, she, I think she's like my second favorite character throughout the entire film. She's so, she, I mean, she's great, but she's also so funny. I mean, she's, I mean, she's always been such a great comedic actress, but I think that you know, it's such a tragic, hopeless character, and I, I I can't see anybody else in that role doing it as well as she did. I think maybe the greatest metatextual tragedy of this film is that, um, 
like I, I I think is unfortunately all falls on Tomei because um, contemporaneous reviews of the film are I think to understate it uh, leering and creepy um, towards her, um, which really uh, bugs me and should I think, um, which is a shame because I think the specific scene that people are creepiest about is actually contains maybe the most technically um, technically accomplished shot in the whole film. There's a shot that rotates around Ethan Hawke's head as Tomei's in the background, and I just can't stop thinking about how horrendously difficult that was to operate because that's a single crane headshot that's that runs through like three setups it's insane and yet i don't know male critics are the worst anyways that's one of the two kind of trends when you look back at contemporaneous reviews before the devil knows you're dead and that one was apparent at the time to me as well but the one that i'm kind of only realizing now is that part of the reason i think this movie I, and I think it's a flawed movie, but it's I, I was kind of thinking recently like, oh, I'm kind of surprised that this movie wasn't getting more love as just this like, you know, great late effort by an extremely well-respected American filmmaker. And I realized that I, one of the big things running through a lot of the reviews that were middling or negative was this kind of overwhelming and even some of the positive ones with this was this overwhelming sense of this movie's too sad for me to like it. Like, it's just <laughs> such a despondent film. How do I like this thing? Uh, guys, if you have stuff to say, I am afraid I have to step out for a moment for a quick bathroom break because that water's catching up with me. All right, I'm going to take the opportunity then to refill my glass of liquid. So I will help we take two minutes maybe. All right. And I'll take this opportunity to do some stand-up comedy. What's up with airplane food? The way that you can only eat it when you're on an airplane? That doesn't seem... right. It seems like an infringement on my rights. Am I right? It's a tough crowd. Hmm. How about subway food? Ever eaten food on a subway? Tastes just like airplane food. I assume. I've never had it. Look, I'm working on better material. I'll get better material. Gosh. The way this crowd reacts, you'd think that you were stuck on a subway. I don't even know if they're still recording. I can talk about all the awful about movies because he's got like three that I just can't watch again. There, he's got he's got an incredible filmography in terms of movies that I think are masterpieces and movies that I think are just complete dog shit. Like, <laughs> just there's nothing redeemable about them whatsoever. Will has a, a pretty good pet theory about how we don't forgive directors they're bad films and we should right because the idea that a director's filmography that every director has to be charles lawton you know is uh, is not maybe the best yeah i don't care about batting averages in film yeah i mean like i mean who's your is your favorite director still john ford will because i mean that guy had like a batting average of like exactly 50 yeah. percent, and you know I mean, Urs Lubitsch, he tended to, my favorite director, he tended to like alternate masterpieces with, I don't think, I've never seen a bad Lubitsch, but he's made some mediocre stuff. It's not worth it. Like, don't see Bluebeard's fourth wife or whatever. It's not worth it. <laughs> Anyhow. So for me, if, if you've listened to anything I've said, I can't go a single episode without bringing this in. The digital cinematography in this movie yeah. is wonderful. 
I love it. Yeah. So it was shot in the Panasonic Genesis, which is most known as a camera that is, to put it charitably, the most horrendous thing to operate ever. <laughs> I have never operated one, thank God. But um, everything I've heard from any cinematographer who's used one is that it is absolutely just clunky. Um, the media system is just the worst. Um, they tried to recreate elements of kind of the 35 millimeter shooting experience with it when they ought not to have because they wanted cinematographers to be comfortable. Um, but I have to say, like, between this and the other Panasonic, the other Genesis films I've seen, that thing produced, you could get great images out of it. Um, and I think that more relevantly, the production opportunities afforded Lumen by using digital cinematography um, allowed him to do some really interesting stuff, uh, most notably with two camera setups, or I don't know if there's more than two, but he mentions two. Um, so he was able to shoot both sides of a shot reverse shot with the same, in the same take. One question I have too, is whether this applied to, to those, um, to those scenes where he repeats, like, are we seeing the same take of the $2,000 scene when we, the camera is a master shot? uh to the left of hoffman or no nope. no we're not seeing the same take no nope, not the same take i, yeah, checked. I don't think so okay that's good to know uh, that's why that's why you two are here and the other <laughs> thing i think that it really brings to the table is the deep focus um because the panasonic genesis was able to again shoot in slightly lower light and the nature of digital sensors um there's a lot to digital sensors that can enable a deeper sense of focus even if you're at the same f-stop it's a long story but um they're able to get two characters completely sharp um at wildly different foreground background element distances um routinely in this movie and the effect is just really fascinating and to me again this is one of those films like contagion where i watch it and i go wow why aren't directors um leveraging the inherent qualities of digital like this in this day and age why why is our endpoint singularity have to be look as close to 35 millimeter anamorphic circa 1975 as possible yeah um i lament was really interesting in just his advocacy for digital filmmaking um which i love because it came right at the tail end of his career and i i he's the only director of his generation that i'm aware of that was kind of such an advocate for it um if there are others i would love to know who they were I mean, I know that at that time in the 2000s, it was like him and Soderbergh. And I, he, he did an interview, I guess it was maybe like a year before he died, where somebody asked him, they were like, are, are there other films that in your filmography that you wish you could have shot on digital? And he said that he would have shot Dog Day on digital and that he would have done half of Network on digital. Huh. Um, he wanted basically the front half of, he wanted the front half of network to be digital because he wanted it to be the realistic kind of style and then he wanted and then he believed that the back half um would be filmed because he wanted it to look more like a commercial like a like a Wheaties commercial or something oh. um so it was a very interesting That's perspective amazing. yeah what a good filmmaker wow side side note by the way we have to give props to his dop who shot this as well as his previous film find me guilty uh, Ron Fortunato, who has like not shot a widely released theatrical film since before The Devil Knows You're Dead, which I just think is a total shame because he's clearly like an enormous talent, <laughs> like easily stacking up to uh, Harris Savidez's work in Zodiac the same year. It's just crazy <laughs> how good this movie looks. 
Wikipedia has a fantastic article called, called List of Films Shot on Digital Video Prior to 2015. Great resource. Oh. Um, I can't, and I, I've been using it for years, and I cannot find a single other director of uh, anything close to Lumet's generation. I think probably because most of them were either retired or dead <laughs> at this point. Yep. Lumet was in his early 80s when he directed this. Um, the closest director I can find is Michael Mann, um, who, uh, or, I mean, George Lucas is a little later, but again, still, that's how far forward you have to go to find more than one other director. All right, Cam, thanks so much for chatting about uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Is there any stuff you want to plug right now? For myself? No. Everything that I'm working on at the time of this publication, but I don't think it'll be out. So there's nothing There's nothing worth. I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. <laughs> Neither of us have anything to plug either. We're, oh no. <laughs> what's, the, what's the point of a podcast if you can't plug stuff? Anyways. Um, <laughs> All right, good, 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 good. All right, well, thanks for joining us, everybody. <laughs> Yeah, this is is so much fun. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Of course. Thank you guys so much. Paige Smith is our associate producer. To you, listener, I'm happy you lent us your ear. And if the feeling's mutual, how about leaving a rating and review for us on your podcast service? You can also contribute to help keep the show going at patreon.com slash filmformally. And find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next time. Will, when you or I edit this, we can move. You can move this forward to my earlier thought to make it seem like I'm smarter than I am, or earlier. It's before the devil knows you're dead. We can do it in whatever order we damn well please. Oh, we should re-edit this episode and, go ahead and like have like one version that's all Will, and then the other two of us like <laughs> like garbled on Zoom, and then we'll just cut. <laughs> and every time we change perspective, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs>